Hello, my name is Oliver Garner and welcome to the latest RevDem Rule of Law podcast. Our guest today is Professor Nandini Ramanujam, a full professor, professional at the Faculty of Law of McGill University and co-director of the Centre for Human Rights and Legal Pluralism, where she supervises the Academic Freedom Monitoring Clinic. Nandini has recently co-authored an op-ed for RevDem, considering academic freedom and the rule of law in Poland, Hungary and Russia which will be the topic of our conversation today. So thank you very much for joining us today, Nandini. It's a pleasure. Thank you very much for the invitation, Oliver. And I'm looking forward to this uh, very important and uh, timely conversation. Fantastic. So for my first question, I thought I would start from first principles and ask you what you think is the theoretical connection between academic freedom and the rule of law. Does academic freedom entrench the rule of law through scholarly research on the concept? And is the rule of law required to ensure academic freedom? Uh, thanks. Thanks for getting it started and st getting it started with a very difficult question. Mm -hmm. um, and the analogy which comes to my mind is from my work in the field of the rule of law and development. That's where most of my work is focused. Mm -hmm. And after seven decades of scholarly explorations, insights from policymakers and practitioners, the best one could do is to establish a tenuous connection, a tenuous relationship between the rule of law and development. Mm -hmm. Whether the rule of law is essential for development or whether certain level of economic development ought to happen before the rule of law culture can flourish and take roots. So it's a classic chicken and uh, egg problem here. Uh, and as you know, the rule of law is neither uh, rule nor law, but a political ideal that concentrates on restricting the arbitrary use of power by delineating the proper function of government and detailing the processes to which decision and law making should conform. The rule of law evolved over centuries of political turmoil in Western Europe and has roots in ancient Greek philosophy. The modern state is constituted around certain fundamental principles uh, that form the basis of the legitimate exercise of political power, human rights being one branch and democracy and the rule of law, the other two of this tripod. The rule of law is thus woven into the fabric of Western legal system and is at all times uh, concerned with delineating power relations. However, its conceptions are many fold and fall within uh, a wide spectrum from procedural to substantive one. Theoretically speaking, the rule of law is an end in itself. It's a good in itself. However, from development point of view, it acquires a more instrumental conception. It is a means, it is a means to reach a desired goal or desired end. And there are necessary conditions for building uh, the rule of law. And some of these necessary conditions are the legal culture, political and economic conditions, and the international law framework. And I think one could extend this framework um, into looking at academic freedom. Uh, 
And similar to the rule of law, the general understanding of academic freedom is tied to the contemporary idea of a Western liberal university, mm. which has its origin in Europe. Um, uh, it is still difficult to dissociate the notion of academic freedom from its historical underpinnings. From universitas, a community of scholars to the modern day university, the conception of ac academic freedom has continued to evolve. Academic freedom could be seen as a good in itself, or it could be seen as necessary for the promotion of a greater social good, greater public good. Uh, in a recent report from the former UN Special uh, Rapporteur on Freedom of Expression, David Kay, uh, this is a report to the UN Human Rights Council. Uh, he's elaborated academic freedom, and I quote, as the freedom of individuals as members of academic community in their own pursuit to conduct activities involving the discovery and transmission of information and ideas, and to do so with the full protection of human rights law, unquote. This, elaborates, this elaboration sees state as the main antagon, antagonist. Um, as we argue in our uh, op-ed, and hopefully the article we would like to publish with you, is the relationship between academic freedom and the rule of law is a bi-directional one. The rule of law places constraints on the use of arbitrary power and procedural safeguards, which prevent threats to academic freedom, in particular by state authorities. In turn, academic freedom facilitates intellectual debate, critique of entrenched values and foster ideological plurality that are vital to the flourishment of democratic societies that adhere to the rule of law. As the op-ed argues, without a minimalist procedural rule of law guarantee, it would be difficult to protect academic freedom and vice versa. Without having academic freedom, it would be difficult to foster democratic, a democratic society. However, this does not mean that the minimalist guarantee of the rule of law is sufficient to uphold the principles of academic freedom. Mm. The pressures, threats on academic freedom are varied. State is an important actor here, as we see in the case of Poland, Hungary, and Russia, and in many other parts of the world. However, threats to academic freedom from non-state actors, such as extremist groups, powerful corporations, donors, religious institutions, the extreme right and the left, uh, and others are equally menacing. In our work on monitoring academic freedom in the context of Nigeria uh, at the, in, in our advocacy clinic, uh, we have noted the role of non-state state armed groups in disrupting the life of academic institutions. Academic freedom in a substantive sense is not possible without civil and political freedoms, a government bound by the rule of law, an independent judiciary, uh, free, informed, and plural media. Uh, however, without the necessary material conditions 
for the functioning of a modern university, the principles of academic freedom may fall short of their desired objectives. Uh, and as you can see, financial levers have been used in Hungary to curtail academic freedom. So it is a very difficult question, but clearly it, there is a nexus, there is a strong relationship between these two big liberal ideas. Thank you so much for that really interesting overview and drawing out those connections between the two concepts. And you mentioned there how academic freedom derived from the same Western liberal tradition as the rule of law. And yet, as you argue in your op-ed, we see these risks to academic freedom arising in Europe, in, in Hungary and Poland, as well as Russia. And so my next question for you, Nandini, was whether you believe all of these examples and others, such as the Bosphorus University in Turkey and the recent controversy over the expel, expulsion of certain French academics, do you believe these cases are all part of the same phenomenon of autocratic capture within society? Or do you think that there are distinct explanations between the cases? Thanks, th thanks once again. Uh, there's so much uh, to think about here. Um, populist governments may have similar manifestations such as demonizing its political and ideological opponents, undermining the rule of law um, and suppression of dissent. However, the drivers in Poland and Hungary are different. Um, I turn to the wisdom of Ivan Krastev, um, uh, who claims that, and I quote him, uh, at the heart of the populist counter-revolution is a radical rejection of the imperative to imitate the liberal democratic West, unquote. In his 90, in his two, 2019 reflection piece entitled Metamorphosis of Central Europe. He explores the phenomenon of the rise of um, illiberalism and native nationalism in, in Central Europe. He, like many other scholars, uh, critiqued the shock therapy approach to systemic transformation, which forced former Eastern Bloc countries to import and transplant liberal democratic political institutions, as well as a market um, economy framework. I believe um, that um, accession to the EU, uh, the European Union necessitated adoption of over 20,000 laws and regulations without involving much de democratic deliberation. It was fast and furious. Looking around the world, top-down transplantation of democracy seldom yields desired results. Uh, institutions are, after all, humanly devised constraints to structure political, social, and economic interactions. Uh, there is primacy of embedded cultural and social norms, uh, which shift slowly. They do shift. Um, and they, in fact, they shift while interacting with faster moving institutions such as politics and law, the formal side of things. Um, I think the rise of illiberal democracy as well as the state of academic freedom in Hungary and Poland demonstrates the gap between this formal institutions which were top down implanted, implanted 
and these embedded norms, and there is contestation. Krastev calls this a moral and psychological downside of adopting a foreign model of political economy. Both Poland and Hungary have also witnessed brain drain amidst an aging population and low fertility rate, which reinforces the sentiment of loss of culture, identity, a sentiment weaponized by populist politicians. There are winners and losers of the systemic transformation in these societies, and the backlash comes from the manipulation of people who feel the sense of loss of self-esteem, identity, culture, and more. I see the current turbulence as a part of the democracy building project. The stifling of academic institutions, um, institutions, um, other democratic institutions, civil society, this, this is not good. This is unlikely to turn the course of democratization uh, of these societies. Uh, it is just a phase where that I think resilience and fight, uh, which we see uh, happening, uh, will continue to happen. So that's my quick read of the situation, but there is so much more uh, which, which could be unpacked to understand why and what is happening in Central Europe. You mentioned there the even Krasov's ideas of the, the imitation of Western institutions and norms. And so I wonder whether we could see or if you perceive there to be a threat of this reverse phenomenon of imitation, whereby threats to academic freedom could spread into Western Europe. And I'm thinking here of particular examples such as the French government's rhetoric against Islamic leftism in French universities. So from your research, do you think that there is such a risk to academic freedom spreading into Western Europe? It, it is, a, once again, uh, a very interesting question. And um, so, so you, you, you have referred to the French government's rhetoric of Islamic leftism, mm. which is being blamed for the erosion of the Republican values and freedoms. Um, I think states, um, in Western Europe and elsewhere are using different bogeymen uh, as uh, the culprit for weakening the liberal democratic social fabric. Um, and I think some of the drivers uh, may not be dissimilar uh, to what we are seeing in Central Europe. Um, so in my view, economic globalization and technological revolutions are important drivers, among others, for the unprecedented level of migration in general and towards the EU in particular. Uh, this has led to the rapid diversification of Western European societies, sparking fear of erosion of cultural identity, which is not so different from the popular sentiment in Hungary and Poland. Um, make America Great Again rhetoric of Trump and the political chasm in the US is similar in terms of psychological manifestation of a romanticized past and a glorious monolithic culture which is being attacked mm -hmm. by what is going on. 
I would like to go back in history to underscore that academic freedom has come under threat at various points due to ideological contestations. During the Cold War in the US and Canada, academics were let go, persecuted, or were not hired due to their pro-communist leanings. Um, A University of Toronto historian named Frank Underhill lost his job for criticizing Canadian government's foreign policy during interwar years. Ideologies have always been deemed to be, there have always been some ideologies uh, deemed to be subversive of the state. Uh, There are new ideologies and actors which are perceived as a threat to the existing social and normative order. It is not just leftist Islamic leftism in France, and I'm quoting it, Uh, I I don't know what it means. Um, uh, But in the UK, the controversy involving Jesus College, Cambridge, and YY donation, the Chinese giant telecom donation, and government of UK getting involved points to new trends around perceived and real threats involving states, powerful corporations, and suddenly extremist ideologies. China's assertion on the global scene as a powerful political and economic actor presents a new ideological challenge to the liberal paradigm. Uh, It is no longer the old fashioned communism, uh, but something much more complex and difficult to neatly pack under a simple ideological uh, box or definition. So so I think, yes, you're right, that uh, vigilance is needed. um, And I think perhaps uh, Western European states where they they do well on the rule of law side things, at least de jure, does not mean that we can be comfortable and and assume that academic liberties uh, are not or may not come under threat. So I think vigilance is very important. Uh, Both Quebec and Ontario uh, in Canada have seen populist politicians appropriating academic freedom concept to further their agendas. Mm. Academic freedom, like other fundamental freedoms, are hard-earned. And as I just mentioned, that call for vigilance and commitment, not just from the academy, but from larger society for its protection. So yes, it's live, it's real. Thank you. Um, for For my next question, I'd like to reflect a little bit upon your own academic profile. And this is relevant to a section of RevDem which considers cross-regional dialogue. So I wonder whether you believe being based in, in North America, in Canada, outside of Europe, allows you a broader perspective on these troubling developments happening within Europe. And you mentioned in your last question, uh, your last answer, about examples in America of during the McCarthy era and examples within Canada of threats in the past. And so my follow-up question was whether you see similar signs of threats to academic freedom in Canada and the USA at uh, this present moment. Yes, uh, life in the academy is, uh, is, 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 is there's never a dull moment and uh, which is a good thing. It, it, it keeps us on our feet and makes us think about what we mean when we say academic freedom. Uh, 
So the current social and political turbulence um, calls for social justice, inclusion, equality, equity, which we are witnessing in the academy uh, in particular, but society in general, uh, is not unique to our time. Uh, there has been slow and steady democratization of higher education space. Rapid diversification of university community is a distinct and attractive characteristic of uh, global universities. CU is a great example of that. The rich demographic and intellectual diversity are having transformative impact on innovation and in teaching, research, and knowledge sharing. This rapidly transformed university landscape makes us forget that not long ago, university was a bastion of elite men who fiercely guarded the academy by keeping so many groups out. So coming back to North America and a little bit of history before we, we talk about what is going on, is in the 1930s and 40s, Canadian universities imposed quota on admission of Jewish students. Other minority groups were barely represented. Women if hired, which was not that often, were not equally paid, had little chance of upward mobility. In this context, academic freedom was guaranteed to some, yet it was constrained by excluding both social and intellectual diversity. Um, the 1960s social justice movement within and outside the academy led to significant changes, not only in bringing previously ex excluded and underrepresented groups in the university, but it also transformed the governance of North American universities into a more democratic one. This process of democratization is happening at a more rapid pace in the universities across the world, but particularly in North America. What we see here now in our context in North America is continuation of the struggle with new voices and groups seeking equity and justice. The perceived threat to academic freedom, which in my view is inaccurate, uh, is due to the creation of a false binary between academic freedom and equality and social justice demands coming from previously marginalized groups. Liberal universities have always been leaders in advancing social justice agenda. Um, what we ought to do here is to reconcile academic freedom as an individual right with group-based demands for equality, which is gr group rights perspective here. And liberal societies, um, use liberal rule of law bound societies use law and policies uh, to reconcile individual and group rights. And liberal global, sorry, liberal global universities are precisely doing this. McGill University has pushed forward a transformative equity, diversity and inclusion agenda with policies and initiatives to level the playing field for the previously underrepresented and excluded groups. This is an example, and it's an important one, of positive measures uh, necessary to democratize the university space, create an enabling environment for participation 
in the life of the university for a diverse university community. These efforts are to strengthen and advance the mission of a liberal university and go beyond looking at the protection of academic freedom merely as a negative right. And, and, and there are efforts to create a, sort of an equal opportunities landscape, uh, which in my view, uh, and reinforces academic freedom rather than restricts it. But the media plays this game of pitching this as a binary, mm. academic freedom versus the equality agenda. And it is unrolling as we speak in Quebec media. Every day there is an article on this issue. The pressure on academic freedom is coming from both extremes of the ideological spectrum, uh, the left and the right. Both get a lot of attention in the media and society. However, you know, as a teacher, as a professor, as a researcher, uh, what I see is a vast majority of scholars, students, administrators are committed to fostering a free and respectful environment for teaching, learning, and knowledge produ production. So is that a real threat in North America? I would say no. Yeah. Should we not be vigilant? No, that is also a no. We should remain vigilant. I think um, media and social media and a lot of misinformation and misconception about academic freedom, which is floating, has to, has to be confronted with. Um, uh, so yes, it is, a, it is a very turbulent time on campuses right now. Thank you so much for, for the depth of your engagement and the historical overview as well. I feel I'm, I'm learning a lot about academic freedom personally. And, for the next question, I thought perhaps we could drill down a little bit into the binary that you presented and also return to some of the theoret theoretical first principles of academic freedom. And so my question for you was whether you believe there are limits to academic freedom where it can be justifiably curtailed for other public goods. Um, you've discussed wartime context, for example, so perhaps public security could be such an example. So yeah, I wonder whether there are indeed limits to academic freedom? Um, academic freedom, like freedom itself, is not absolute. Mm -hmm. uh, its purpose is to pursue truth and knowledge for the good of the society. Uh, freedoms always come with obligations. Um, I would like to emphasize on the end goal um, here, which is public good and social good. In my view, all matters involving social, political, and ideological contestations in the university sphere could be deliberated and resolved with greater social good in sight if the principles of academic freedom are respected by all stakeholders. Curtailing academic freedom, in my opinion, would harm rather than help this process of informed deliberations. Mm. As mentioned earlier, academic freedom comes with responsibilities and it's governed by academic rules, regulations, and custom. Uh, in Canada, academic freedom is constrained by the professional standards of the relevant discipline and the responsibility of the university to organize its academic mission. The key is to remind ourselves that academic freedom guaranteed to academic freedom guarantee to individual academics and safeguards for institutional autonomy are meant to serve the
the larger public good. Referring to Popper's idea of uh, open society, which I grew up with when I was in Budapest, uh, I think liberal universities which foster a space for critical inquiry and debates are vital for building open and democratic societies. University is a community of inquiry and university sits within a larger community, which is our society. And it's no longer our immediate society, it is the global society. Mm. The empowerment which comes with academic freedom obliges us to use this freedom responsibly and for advancing the well-being of society. And once again, it's the global society. We are so interconnected that we cannot just think about our own backyard. Mm. Um, so with that in mind, um, I think in abstract to have a conversation whether some restriction on academic freedom are desirable if they meet a certain end goal uh, would be a difficult one to have. Um, and I think this freedom does come with a lot of responsibility and, um, and regulation within the academy. Earlier in our, our conversation, we talked about the background to the current situation in Central Europe of accession to the European Union. So I, I was wondering whether you believe that the EU and other international organizations could do more to promote and protect academic freedom and to combat state attempts to curtail these freedoms. Yeah, this is, this is uh, once again, brings me back to all the work and critique of building the rule of law abroad. Uh, Crothers has a damning critique of what we do and how we do it. Uh, promotion and protection of academic freedom, similar to human rights, uh, has been mostly pursued through and continues to be so through the negative freedoms and negative rights perspective. Although post-Cold War, uh, the sharp binary between the blue and the red rights, uh, the binary has collapsed, uh, the rule of law, human rights, academic freedom, protection, work tends to be pursued only through the civil and political rights framework. Uh, borrowing from, um, again, a great uh, Central European jurist, Karel Vasak's three generations of rights framework, academic freedom has to be promoted through an integrated framework of negative, positive, and solidarity rights framework. In many contexts, particularly in low middle income countries, frail and fragile states, the threat to academic freedom does not come from just the state, uh, but there are a variety of forces. Armed conflicts involving non-state actors threaten academic freedom, lack of financial resources curtail academic freedom. Without security of tenure or simply put job security, mm. Uh, without access to necessary material and scholarly resources for knowledge production, without opportunities for knowledge dissemination and peer exchange, the academic endeavor is not what is idealized by the liberal university model. Investment in institutions of higher education should be a priority for the EU. 
um, other OECD countries, multilateral organizations. Um, uh, I'd refer to the goal 17 of the Sustainable Development Platform, which is about partnership and cooperation to achieve the sustainable development agenda. And I believe that this could be a good um, uh, framework to guide EU and other donor efforts to advance academic freedom uh, agenda. Uh, so the target 17.6 of this goal speaks to enhancing north-south, south-south and triangular regional and international cooperation on, on and access to science, technology and innovation and enhance knowledge sharing on mutually agreed terms, including through improved coordination among existing mechanisms. The emphasis here is on science and technology and the target does not specifically speak about universities. However, in addition to using incentives and disincentives for recipient states to respect academic freedom, efforts must be made to strengthen capacity of universities in, in wherever EU is working or working through various overseas uh, assistance programs. Um, I think monitoring, reporting, and advocacy are necessary, uh, but not sufficient tools to guarantee academic freedom. So once again, having a more comprehensive approach to academic freedom might help advance the agenda further than simply using the carrot and stick to contain the state. Uh, which is important, but certainly not sufficient here. You mentioned earlier this quite powerful idea of, of a global society as the subject of academia and research. And so my question for you, Nandini, is whether you believe in the future, can technology, such as massively open online courses, be used as a tool to transcend and overcome specific state interference with uh, universities? Yes, uh, it's, it's, it's particularly in the Zoom world, the way we are connecting today, and it wouldn't be possible uh, even uh, a couple of years ago. Uh, it, it's, it's a very important question. Um, technology and web-based information exchange and knowledge mobilization does have an emancipatory potential uh, for facilitating dialogue that transcend territorial boundaries. Um, before I, I actually speak to the potential, I would just also like to be a little cautious with the emergence of surveillance states mm -hmm. and the current climate where information ecosystems are being manipulated and interfered by powerful state and non-state actors. Uh, and it is, it is posing a serious threat to democratic institutions, uh, this. Uh, in something which we, a, a recent chapter I have co-authored on information disorders. Um, the so-called information disorder has, as we can see, has had a demonstrable effect on uh, 
tampering with electoral process. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't stop there. And I think something more insidious is happening. And the impact is the populist governments have deliberately destabilized the information ecosystems of their countries, creating information disorders uh, and are and which is to their advantage, an advantage uh, to other vested interest groups. Um, and the traditional checks and balances on information flow are no longer effective in this context, uh, where there is an exponential rise of new media and social medias. And amidst this overload of information, ordinary citizens are unable to distinguish between credible and false information. And this is this has an e a considerable impact in, in on the academy uh, in terms of having informed and critical debates. Uh, so that's just a word of caution that the technology is fabulous, but the regulatory framework is not there yet. And there is a lot of manipulation going on by pretty much anyone who has power, private, public, and others. So with that in, in mind, I would still, uh, I concur that uh, with you that there is a tremendous potential uh, for this, not just of massive online open access course, but various other pathways to engage with the issue of academic freedom. Um, so MOOC could be an effective platform for fostering an understanding of the often misunderstood concept of academic freedom, which, can, which we know it is even in our context. So I just noted that the Scholars at Risk Network has just launched an online open access course uh, entitled Why Academic Freedom Matters. Uh, the course is based on, um, based on the description I looked at, aims to explore the relationship between academic freedom and democratic society. This course is informed by their two decade long experience in the field of protecting and promoting academic freedom. And if I understand correctly, the larger goal of the course is to underscore the importance of academic freedom to the inclusive, sustainable development, social development side of things. Um, once again, I come back to some mistakes which we have made in, in doing human rights and rule of law work in the field and uh, trying to, if lessons could be learned. So, what the trials and tribulations of promoting the rule of law and human rights in vastly different societies has taught us one thing, that there is no template um, which could work everywhere. There is not no one size which would fit all contexts and societies. It is critical to understand context-specific particularities customs, norms, value systems, in order to advance academic freedom, goals of promoting and protecting academic freedom. Um, like the rule of law, academic freedom is a cherished ideal of liberal demo democratic societies. And as we know, 
that the world does not consist only of liberal democratic societies and polities. It would be important to have a diversity of perspectives on the concept of academic freedom. So if there were to be courses, I think it is important that they are not just coming from the US and Europe. Uh, I think collaborative development of courses involving people, say from Egypt, uh, from Malaysia, where freedoms look quite different, uh, would be an interesting thing uh, to do. I think to provide a diverse range of perspective on what academic freedom means in different contexts. Our work on the article and the op-ed on Poland, Hungary, and Russia brought us new insights into the into the role of universities, higher education institutions, how, what was the role, what the state thought the role was, particularly in the USSR and how it has extended beyond the USSR now to modern day Russia. The fast and furious top-down systemic transformation of Russia to a liberal market economy has produced far from expected results. There are no surprises there. Um, institutional transplants are seldom successful. Norm nudging and creation of new ones is a slow process and even on academic freedom matters. The higher education sphere and its freedom similar to the civil society media are highly contested spaces in many parts of the world. Um, and I think this contestation will lead to norm creation. There will be new norms, bottom up, more organic. Uh, um, so what we could do is to provide avenues, these massive open online courses could provide us ways in which we can understand how these norm shifting is happening how people are understanding academic freedom. Just like in Western Europe, academic freedom was an evolving idea. Um, and, and it has had its own trials and triumphs. Uh, so it's, it's important that diversity of perspective to be captured through the online platform. Wonderful, thank you so much. Um, for our final question, I'd like to reflect upon RevDem Review of Democracy's parent organization and ask you, Nandini, what would be your advice to CEU and its students and other higher education and civil society organizations in the face of pressure from governments that threaten academic freedom? Uh, it's a nice, nice way to end uh, this conversation. Um, uh, I don't have any advice. I don't think I am in a position to give advice, but I could share some things which has shaped my own life and uh, my own professional trajectory. And, and it continues to uh, uh, inform my engagement uh, with projects such as uh, this. Uh, so I'm a great believer in solidarity, and therefore I did invoke BASEC's three-generation framework. The higher education and civil society spaces are more connected globally than ever before. Technology has facilitated connections, space for dialogue, and ease of exchange of ideas, something which was not possible when CU was founded in 1991. 
and uh, COVID-19, which disrupted our normal life, uh, has also acted as a catalyst to exploit technology for teaching, knowledge dissemination, and more. So a little bit of a sort of personal history here is my formative years have been shaped by the experience of teaching economics in Lithuania between 1992 and 94, with a small NGO called Civic Education Project, which has been absorbed by the CEU now in some capacity. And see, Civic Education Project was founded by two young social scientists. They were doing their PhDs, one at Harvard, one at Yale. And it was supported by Open Society Institute, among many other donors. And the mission of CEP was to foster dialogue and academic exchange between Western liberal universities and recently opened up universities in East Central Europe and the former Soviet Union. The idea was very simple. Young social scientists from liberal universities would spend one or two academic years teaching new courses, introducing pedagogical innovations, while learning from their local peers about the challenges and opportunities facing the higher education space. So it was very peer-oriented uh, program. There was symbiotic learning among peers and between visitors and students and, and colleagues. Although the project did not invoke academic freedom, you know, this, this happened before the web websites became common. So we don't, never had a website, so I couldn't find much information, but I know that we did not talk so much about academic freedom. Uh, it was informed by principles of free exchange of ideas, the central role of critical inquiry in teaching and research. And there were many similar projects which ensued uh, in the 90s. Uh, and the idea was to bring about systemic change in higher education from within. Um, Hungarian and Polish universities enthusiastically partnered in hosting young professors. Um, uh, and CU, which was founded in 91, the same year as Civic Education Project, was informed by a complementary approach to bringing about systemic change. And this was from outside. Uh, and many, several new academic institutions in Russia and other Eastern European countries were created as model institutions, which were expected to provide impetus for change in teaching and scholarship in social sciences and the humanities. CEU was and remains central to this project. And in the 90s, I remember CU was this model institution which hosted student conferences and we would travel from different paths from Kazakhstan to Ukraine to come to Budapest then. Uh, and these students, young students, this was their dream that this is where they want to come for their postgraduate degrees. Um, and I think institutions such as CU are a testimony to the trials and tribulations of building bottom-up global liberal institutions. 
Um, it's not a given. And I think uh, from Prague to Budapest to Vienna, CU is a living testimony of the importance of international solidarity, resilience, and a commitment to liberal education. Students at CU are privileged to be part of this extraordinary institution, such as I was privileged to be part of a great institution. And thus I volunteered to go and teach in Lithuania uh, under circumstances which were far from ideal and I knew nothing about teaching. Uh, so I think the call would be, or if at all I could say something to the students is to lending solidarity and support to less privileged peers, peer institutions across the region, across the globe, through whichever opportunity you can find to engage yourself with. And ultimately, I think the individual who gets involved comes out, out, out of it with a transformative experience, which, which is tremendous. So that's, that's my... Uh, a little bit of sharing of what I did in the past. Well, thank you so much for those inspiring final words. And I hope at Rev them, we will also seek to pursue that goal. And thank you in general for an enlightening discussion that I'm sure will be very informative for our readers on academic freedom. And I'd encourage our listeners to engage also with your op-ed, which is published on the RevThem platform at the moment. So thank you once again, Nandini, for a wonderful- Thank you, Oliver, for inviting me to have this conversation. It made me think about many things which otherwise I would not have thought about. <laughs> I appreciate the invitation and thanks for accepting our op-ed for the publication. It's, it's, it's the right place for it to be published. So we are very pleased and feel privileged to have that opportunity. Mm -hmm.